0: Welcome to On the Record with Tiffany. There are heroes throughout San Antonio, men and women that go the extra mile to make lives better. During the next hour, you'll be inspired as we introduce you to these unsung heroes. And now here's your host, Tiffany Jones-Smith.
1: And we're back. With another episode of On the Record with Tiffany and Kevin. And Kevin. She doesn't like that. She says it. a little this thing. Hey, we got some chemistry. We got chemistry. That's that's what they tell us. Uh, here on 930 AM, The Answer. And we can also be seen on the African American Network television where we have a local feel with a global reach. Um,
2: and also we can be found on YouTube,
1: right? Yes, and wherever podcasts stream. Um we just want to say a quick thank you to uh one of our favorite uh sponsors because the Smackdown is still going between Kevin and me. I've already started started my uh eating well. Okay. Well. <laughs> yes. Uh and H-E-B, thank you so much. Uh we had the best meeting ever with H-E-B last week and Great. uh you guys have some good food over there the Ciete Company, we had your your uh, tortillas last night, and they're the and bomb. Everybody needs to try this. <laughs> yes, you it's do. great. All right. um, well, today we have civil rights activist, historian, um, an all around great guy but he's willing to, he's going to bring the fire. <laughs> he's going to bring the fire. Mario <laughs> Salas.
2: <laughs> oh, well.
0: <laughs> uh,
2: now, we were talking about this before we started recording, right? So Tiffany, we were talking about, hey, who should we do, blah, blah, blah. And then she brought up your name. And I went. I was like, like, this the guy, guy is amazing. Commissioner Calvert had the book on. And mm-hmm. she said, yeah, I said. That's like the academic Uncle Abe, right? So that's Tiffany's that's my uncle. uncle. My favorite. And he's uncle, hardcore, by the way. right? And I went, "Oh my god!" But I read his <laughs> book, right? He wrote a very provocative book, right? The Alamo: A Cradle of Lies, Slavery, book. and his, and White Supremacy. I was like, "Oh yeah!" And I read through the book. It, it's a well-documented book. Uh, it, it's well-written. It's well-written, and it basically—I would summarize it as—you know—challenging the myth that we often carry of history versus the reality of history, right? And so, uh, and I'm a nerd, by the way. So one of the first things I do is I take a book and I go right to the bibliography, right? The bibliography and the notes. And so, and that's where I start at and and, and I reverse engineer uh, into the book. And Tiffany's been, she said, you're just strange, who does that? Well, I don't but know. we I've read doing... differently. Yeah. We have
1: two completely different reading styles. Yeah, I start at this. the end.
2: Tell me, I want to see the ending then I can go back and read the book.
1: And I like yeah. to read from the beginning and then I go back and highlight sections, and pull that? out that's what I want to, w- what really stood out to me, and then I read it again, and you know, I read like three times before. Yeah.
3: I, as long as you're a thorough reader, the methodology doesn't matter. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, All professor. Right. H- however, however, <laughs> I do the same thing he does, because I want to see the documentation. I don't want to waste my time. <laughs> yeah, I see the and, and that's
1: what then. he says. He's like, yeah. Don't read that book. Some people are <laughs> lightweight. So
3: yeah. but, but, but either way works because if you're a good reader and you have mm-hmm. some background knowledge, um, you can pretty much pull from your own experiences mm-hmm. about what you're reading and then you just have it verified all when we right. get to the end. All right. we're,
2: see, I, we're not going to start with the book. I want to start with knowing his history right. as a kid. Yeah. You, you, I mean, I always people in it, their 70s, they're like the last generation of people who experienced segregation. Right. And so who actually experienced the emotional pull of it and the environmental and cultural effects of it. Right. So we want to start
1: there. And for the mind. the interest is, wow, you went through all of that. Not microaggressions like today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. microaggression That's not the same. <laughs> so,
2: so let's start there. You're born in 49. Correct. Right here in our lovely city of San Antonio.
3: Well, everything you, see around, everything you see around here is built on racism, but go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Abe's coming at us, right? All right, so walk us through. walk us through, uh,
2: like, your earliest memory uh, of, of your family.
3: Well, um, I was raised on the east side of San Antonio. I went to a Catholic school, for starters, and then wound up at Phyllis Wheatley High School, which was a segregated black high mm-hmm. school because it was, like, maybe 100 yards from my house, mm-hmm. and it didn't charge tuition. You know, Catholic schools, you had to pay tuition. Yeah. And my mother and father were in the midst of a divorce, and so the money dried up. So it was best for me to go to public school, and I was just right down the street. So um, so yeah, I, I, I grew up in, in, in a black community. Uh, I grew up in a multiracial family uh, of my, my father, Afro-Mexican, um, who— <laughs> who was Mexican one day and black the next? <laughs> and, and 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 what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, you know, what, what that means is he he was very fluent in Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, but he also recognized his skin was much darker than mine, and and that showed up on different occasions when we were told to go to the back of the bus, or when we had to go to, when we went to the theater, uh, had to go to the back of the theater. Not so much because of me, but because of him. So. We would have to go to the back of the theater at the Majestic, which was on College Street, uh, when mm-hmm. we went went to the theater. So I experienced that firsthand. Um, and what was that like?
1: You know. Well, I,
3: I I tell you, it's funny though because it depends on who was at the ticket booth on that particular day, mm-hmm. uh, because they would do a visual vetting. What I call visual, I call it a racist stare. Mm-hmm. Visual vetting. They're gonna look at you, and you can always tell. I, that's how I tell a racist People of mixed ancestry normally do that. Mm -hmm. They look at you hard, uh, or they try to cover it so it doesn't look so hard. (laughs) But they start at the top. They're looking for curly hair or any kind of curls. They're looking for wide noses or thin lips. And skin color um, becomes paramount in some cases. But at the ticket booth, it depends on who was there at the Majestic Theater. One guy would look at my father and kind of do that and then look at me and uh, go ahead. And and so then the next guy that was at the ticket booth would say, "No, y'all got to go around the back." So mm-hmm. I saw that from two different directions. Um, it's kind of like people don't understand this, but everybody talks about having to go sit in the back of the train, the back of the bus if you were African American. But there were some cities in the South where they forced you to sit in the front of the bus and the train, so the whites could watch you from behind, thinking that stereotyping you, you're a criminal in this way. We can keep an eye on these criminals. So there are some southern cities that uh, the, the Jim Crow law made blacks sit in the front of the bus. Nobody knows that. They, they don't talk about that. But that's absolutely true. So anyway. I, 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 and that would seem
1: like it would go along with that mindset more. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean?
3: Like, uh, Which is even that, more nefarious. And, and so when I, when I was coming up, there was not a single restaurant in downtown San Antonio where a black person could go eat. They were all segregated. You couldn't you couldn't do that. And so depending on who the restaurant owner was, there again, my dad would be told no, but another restaurant would just yeah, come on in. So yeah, so that sticks with you, right?
2: So uh, I was thinking when you were telling that story, I was thinking about Tiffany's grandmother, Victoria Apple, and everyone called her Ma. So I just or want to explain, Vicky. Or Vicky. I didn't call her Vicky. I called her Ma. Yeah. Uh, everybody crazy. in the family called her Ma. We called her Ma, and so that's one of the things that she talks about is that it just depends. Now Ma was actually actually lighter than you if you looked at her. When we go to Miami, uh, everyone would start
1: speaking Spanish to her. Mm-hmm. And and she I, it would just drive her crazy. They drive her crazy because <laughs> she, she she's not Afro Latina. <laughs> She's just black.
2: Yeah, she's American, Mm -hmm. as she Mm -hmm. would say. She got Mm -hmm. extremely racist, to be Mm -hmm. honest with you, Mm -hmm. right? But she tells that story of going, there was actually a barbecue place, we won't call the name, that Mm -hmm. she refused to eat at. She yeah. said they didn't serve black people because they wouldn't and, serve her husband, and they were wondering why but, she would doing it. Well, that. she yeah.
1: refused to eat there because not just because they didn't serve black people, but because they were black, they were just really fair skinned black people who were passing mm-hmm. and they didn't serve their own people. Mm-hmm. And that for her was just like, You, I don't care how light your skin is,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you don't go and pretend that you're not. What you are. All, mm-hmm, all right. Mm-hmm. So you know, that was a big deal in our family. All right.
2: So that's so that's the environment you're raised in, and one of the things that my grandmother always uh, and I bring this up just as a historical reference. When she and I we go to a lot of cemeteries when I go pick her up and we go driving, right? And she always talks about having to avert her eyes down or, or get off, get out of, get off of the the sidewalk to let the other person come through. To let the
1: white person. To let the come. white
2: person come through, and, and I. And like in my mind, that's, it's crazy, not a min- right?
1: that's not even something that that I can conceptualize. Yeah. And that people are, that people that are younger than us have have experienced. They don't know what that feels
3: mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and part of that you might call Anglo culture, where the I stare, look me in the eye, kind of thing is Anglo culture. And uh, you know, that's it's interesting that in some Native American tribes. Uh, they're taught not to look people in the eye. I asked a Comanche one day, a friend of mine. I said, well, "What's the deal with not looking people in the eye?" He said, "Well, it's a sign of respect. Don't look them in the eye." And then I said, "Well, when do you when do Comanche, when did Comanches in the past look people in the eye?" He said, "We only did that when we meant to kill you. Yeah. But it will take your spirit away. So mm-hmm. that's a totally different that's understanding an right? of looking. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Of looking people in the eye. Nigerians are really good about looking people in the eye. Boy, they will they will hawk eye you." Um, similar to Anglos it's an eye thing but not all Africans and Native Americans don't believe in that necessarily black folks like to look for people mm-hmm. in the eye oh yeah that's a yeah. big thing I think that came yeah, from of West Africa Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. and so
3: alright so uh,
2: I, I try to be meth- 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 methodical in, in the question ask, ans- answering or asking right so history your father extremely dark man right uh, you look like somebody from Louisiana. <laughs>
3: that's what I thought when
2: I first met, when I first saw you. Hollywood, folks. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, boy, yeah. Come on over here. So the impact of that, because, you know, I share with you that when I looked at the census, mm-hmm. your father is marked as a, as a white man. Correct. In the 1950
3: census, right. which
2: has just been released for all you uh, genealogy geeks out
3: there. Right. So. Right. Well, in, in South Texas and many other places, it was politically expedient. For to label Mexican-Americans as white because in certain places where there were white political bosses who controlled the political arena, they could increase the chances of them winning a mayoral election, winning a mayoral election, or city council race by having Mexican-Americans vote for the candidate that they wanted. So they, if they could get the, the health department and the commissioner's court to identify a certain segment of the population as being white, then they could incorporate that group of people into a voting block and win an election. That idea actually caused county governments to separate from each other in the the 1920s and 30s. I think Zapata County and another county down south was created because there were too many Mexicans labeled white, and they were winning the whites who wanted them to—and look, it wasn't Mexicans winning the, the elections. It was white men winning the elections with Mexican votes. So these other political bosses, white political bosses in these other counties, they said, you know what, we don't want to be a part of that county anymore. Let's split off and form another county. So you probably have three counties down in South Texas it's split off for of exactly those reasons
2: and that is documented right so this is the only yes. thing right so when I when I met Mario I was, when I was reading through his book because I was like oh I, it sounds like Uncle Abe and so I went I was what's your through...
3: phone number by the way <laughs> you be hanging out
2: I was just like oh my god but when I went back and I started in the bibliography and as I'm looking through the bibliography I'm like oh that's what that is and so I'm able to go and verify those pieces of information and for me it's all true that's true and that's the wonderful part of history is where we break up the mythology yeah. part with the fact
3: part of it there. Yeah, and I believe you can find that in David Montajano's book. I think I have him in a reference. Yeah, you I have him there. And yeah. you
2: quoted some interesting people in your book, and I know I said we we're going to wait on the book, but it's still, it's an interesting book. The title is very, very provocative. I was like, oh my God, it's a provocative title. Well, you, as you go through the book, the book is well documented. Uh one of, the, one of the people that you quote, and I always forget her name, is a uh, historian in... Um, Here he is, a historian from UT. And her name, I always say, Diana? Yeah, it's Diana uh, Berry. Mm -hmm. Diana Berry, right? She wrote a great book, How Much is a Pound of Flesh? And then that database that she, which they have behind a paywall, by the way. (laughs) There's a database, a good book, in which they go through 36 archives, and they go from the period of like 1791 to like 1862, 63. Mm -hmm. And they go through and they pull out uh, the values that slaves were selling for. And she has a rough estim- estimation of how much a slave costs based on age, based on gender, based on beauty standards, right? Uh, and Sometimes then, based on weight. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that, and I, when I saw you quote when her. I sold kids by the pound. Yep. yep. So a pound of flesh, and that's what it's based on.
1: And that, you know, when you hear that and you're looking at that, that really drives home what slavery is. Yep. And it also drives home the fact that we haven't begun to touch true education about this. Yeah, and the reason in the general public, the general public does not know what this yeah. truly looks. Well, like. But for me, the it reason that's true.
2: important is to is I, I I challenge the idea that we haven't made progress because when you look at that time frame, uh, post slavery or even before slavery, the average. The average American, or in our case, as slaves, non-American, they were all racist. Even slaves were racist. They held some view of race, uh, right? That the, the lighter your skin was, the closer to white you were. Mm-hmm. You yes, know, you were more favored. Them, yeah, right? yeah, that yes. was. But the whole society was mm-hmm. a racist society. Yeah, openly. Even the roasted. people
1: that are being treated poorly have. So races for me, the importance
2: of that time period is to use that system. as a standard and say we've made progress. We may not be at the ideal. We We definitely progress. We have. We can be involved more, right? Now we can debate how far that goes, and I'm okay with that. Which is why I think your title is like smack, right? So anytime something offends me.
3: I'm
1: like, I gotta go read that. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I but see, read I, that. I did not find the title
3: of. Well, the title the, I found the, the t- title worked in that case. Oh yeah, <laughs> you
1: got me right. See, I found the, the title to be, oh, somebody's telling the truth. Let me see. <laughs>
3: see. let me amplify this voice. Tiffany and Kevin, I have to point this out too. W- what I always worried about is people making these false arguments. Mm-hmm. One of which is called presentism. I never look at the past through modern eyes. I look at the past through the documents that were written mm-hmm. at that time. Yep. Mm-hmm. So this whole argument about presentism is is fallacy. It's a joke. And um, you look at the primary. I don't have to make up anything from modern eyes when you read the Texas Articles of Succession yep. or mm-hmm. you read the Texas then Constitution. Is they said they it were. themselves. So yeah. I'm not. I don't have to look at it with modern mm-hmm. eyes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and all so- you have to do is. Like literally, this is Just a, read it. A, that's right. Uh-huh. This is a historian's account, and there's a very big difference between somebody who is reporting the historical facts and somebody that is interpreting. Yeah, so interpreting there, facts, and, right.
2: and and there is the mythology uh, of history, right? And then there's the actual history, right? So mythology of history is generally used in high school, right? So they want to uh, because this, there, there's this historical <laughs> thought, if you will. That in order to hold a nation or a group together, and you and I were talking about this earlier. They got to have common themes, common uh, belief systems that they hold, right? And so, uh, and and but unfortunately, right? At what point? This is the thing. At what point do you start introducing history, the reality of history, in along the way? So right. tell me how you feel about that, right? So, like, if I'm teaching my daughter, right, uh, about history as we walk through that, how much of that should be the mythology of Washington? Uh, didn't lie after he jumped <laughs> out the territory. We know that's, I remember yeah. telling my dad that he was like, you believe that? Yeah. I was like, well,
3: okay. Yeah, so. yeah no, there's there's a lot, a lot to consider. And certainly we ought to, at some point in the future, be able to say that we're talking about history as it has evolved, as opposed to what was originally said. You know, you can't look at, I mentioned that in the, in the book, you can't look at, if you're looking at an elephant with a microscope, then you might be missing what the whole elephant looks like. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at the whole elephant and not the surroundings, then you may miss the surroundings in which the elephant lives. If you look at a little piece of history, that's not research. You have to look at both the micro pieces and the macro pieces. So you got to zoom in and zoom out. And when you do that, you get a, a clearer picture of what can be. So when you teach history, you ought to teach the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think that's exactly. the way it ought to be taught. Yep. Exactly. Because if you're just... Because you build strength, uh, a nation can build strength when it's honest with its people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, and you can see now that strength ain't there you because can learn people from your are, are, are finding out mm-hmm. they were been lied to. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so, so that's how I would look at that. What greater thing could one say in the future when one looks back and, and could possibly say we used to be taught that uh, Jefferson was a great man and never taught that he was owned slaves, but we worked our way beyond that and we worked our way through that. And we now live in a non-racial society. We live in an anti-racist society. We can't say that now. But if we begin to have people look at the primary source stuff, look at the true history of any nation, then I think you can move toward a stronger society. You're not going to get stronger by lying to people. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that.
1: And you're not going to get people to trust you in very key areas, like health care, like all these these. We have so many different places where where um, marginalized communities don't trust mm-hmm. what is considered the authorities or the majority. Mm-hmm. They don't trust your word because there, has been, there have been lies in so many other areas.
0: Well,
2: well, let me go to the flip side of that, right? Because I always like, this is one of the things that drives Tiffany crazy about me is that I always want to argue the other side, Because mm-hmm. so I, I want to see it from the other view as well, right? So I'm thinking of a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, and we talk about the, the subject of history, Right. And from a viewpoint of someone classified as a white male, right, he says, well, you know, at what point do at what point? am I going to be taken out of the history? Am I supposed to feel bad about these things that happened in history, right? So when you got, when I hear you, because I always bring up slavery and different things in our culture, right? Uh, when I say our culture, the American culture, he always says, am I supposed to feel bad about see that? that see I'm that, like, no, I don't want well, you to feel well, bad. You well, know, oh, and, you know. and,
3: and see, and that comes from his lack of knowledge yep. about mm-hmm. the whites who oppose slavery, mm-hmm. about the whites who yep. oppose... Right? My he radical know, Republicans, yeah, right? Well, what, yeah, exactly. What happened to John Brown? What, the white heroes that were created in this society are not heroes in my mind at all. The ones who were really heroes, like John Brown mm-hmm. and other people in Texas, Benjamin Lundy, mm-hmm. who was an anti-slavery advocate, and dozens, hundreds of other Yeah, Ulysses S. Grant yeah. was an anti uh, Hundreds right. of other whites, mm-hmm. uh, their stories not being told. So, no, you don't have to feel bad about that. You, you gotta feel
1: that you can feel good about. Yeah, but you, haven't been you, you, told you those just stories. need
3: to know the ones you can feel good about. <laughs> that's right. About. Yeah, and I that's think, right. you
1: know, and then I
2: think,
3: and, also,
1: that, and that's the beauty of telling the truth yeah. instead of instead of this uh, this antiquated idea. But you have to what, come with that. You know,
2: Tiff and I—we have two minutes here. We 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 have we're having a discussion like we would at the house if we if we invited <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we invited <laughs> Marty over. This is this is the same discussion we'd have at the house, right? So. I happen to be I happen to be patriotic like we all are here, and mm-hmm. I believe in the the mythology of of, of exceptionalism of American exceptionalism. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean we intended to be that way from the beginning, but it just happened to be that we ended up that way, right? and mm-hmm. that we're in this culture now that's held together that wasn't always held together by the idea of freedom. probably at, uh, it was probably after World War II we entered into the Cold War that people were like, "Hey, America, put up or shut up. You say you believe in freedom?" How free are you when you have a whole group of people that aren't free, right? Mm-hmm. So that's my concern. Like when I, when I hear people mm-hmm. on television uh, or, or on the radio, this kind of this leftist front, right? And I have to be careful of that because that's a very broad term, right? Is that that's my concern is that they remove this sense of pride that I have in this country, mm-hmm. right? But I like your view of, because I, when I, after I got past your title, started reading your book and talked to you, I'm like, wait a minute. This guy is, is not what came to my mind, mm-hmm on this year it's like hey i have this story that i believe that's parts truth parts not right and then i have this documented reality as well and see where and we,
1: yeah, where, yeah. We diver- where we are div where we are different different right is that i think that there has to be both mm-hmm. i think that uh you know i'm always leery of of anybody on the Far right, far, far right, far, far left. Because I don't think that people live in these two extremes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People yeah. live somewhere yeah. in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and nobody's 100% right on either... Well, first of all, I don't think the far right is right at all. But um, nobody is 100% correct on uh, where they... On these extreme ideas. Everybody is... Beliefs, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You yeah. got to figure out what is truth that's guiding your beliefs. What's yeah. the truth? So, so, Where's the
3: truth? There. See, in, in my opinion, America was not exceptional in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. No, it, it was. It was horrible. I disagree with that it was horrible <laughs> because white supremacy ruled yep. everything, mm-hmm. and and it, you could you was. could easily make the argument we never had a democracy until at least 1965, mm-hmm. 64, or 65 mm-hmm. with the Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. when they tried to eliminate. The Mm -hmm. fact that you couldn't vote because you were black or you were a woman or whatever the case was, Um, so was there any real democracy before that? And the answer, in my opinion, no, there wasn't. So we only had a real democracy after 1965, Mm -hmm. or at least the attempt to move toward a real democracy after 1965. Before that, yeah, I guess we could say we, yeah, we were exceptionally. We were exceptional in treating people bad. So. Yeah. Okay. So we're up on the time here. Uh, okay, we're gonna do we, our next segment. Yeah, we can do
2: our next segment uh, as we go through that. And so my so my counter argument would be that if you look,
1: wait, I'll be quiet. you've been listening to on the record with Tiffany and our special guest, Mar- Professor Mario Salas, and we're gonna come back and review his book. The Alamo, a cradle of lies, slavery, and white supremacy. I'm Tiffany Smith, Chief Executive Officer of the Texas Kidney Foundation, and I'm here to talk to you about your kidney health. Health is the most important asset we possess. COVID-19 has exposed the unhealthy nature of our population. One in three Americans are at risk for chronic kidney disease. In absolute numbers, that translates into about 600,000 San Antonians. Have you been diagnosed with diabetes? Have you been diagnosed with hypertension? Do you take blood pressure medicine? Do you have heart disease? Have you experienced heart failure? Do you have a history of dialysis or kidney failure in your family? If you said yes to two or more of those questions, you need to come and see us. Are you a part of that one in three? Is your sister? Is your brother? Is your mother? Texas Kidney Foundation offers free screenings. All you have to do is go to our website, www.txkidney.org. Check out our free screenings. You can either come to our office for an in-office visit, or we can come to you. You can schedule a screening or go to a screening near you. And we're back. With On the Record with Tiffany. And Kevin. hmm <laughs> And our special guest, <laughs> Professor Mario Salas, author of The Alamo, A Cradle of Lies, Slavery, and White Ooh. Supremacy.
2: Uh, yeah, you came with the fire on that. So we're talking, right? We're talking about, uh, the, you know, American exceptionalism, and we're talking about democracy and how it wasn't applied to everyone there, right? But eventually we moved in that direction. And one of the things that I have to keep in mind, that I always keep in mind, is I look at the overall long, the long timeline of history, right? Mm-hmm. Like, compare us in the context that we were in. Mm-hmm. Not to deny, not to minimize, or anything like that, right? But in the context and so I,
1: I get what you're saying, that the yeah. that the whole world was living in this... uh at a very barbaric same, time, right? Yeah, with the same yeah. same mentality worldwide. It still doesn't make it so any less So you, you think about repugnant. the time... I agree, right? <laughs> but we're looking
2: at it from our view, uh, from where we're at right now. That's how we're looking right. at it, right? Yes. So you think about it, right? So Spain had just been freed from uh, from Islamic rule, what in 1500s or so? Yeah, 1492. In
3: 1492,
2: right? And then jump. So and literally, fr- uh, uh, Spain was a superpower. It was the equivalent of America at that time. Mm-hmm. If you were an unfortunate country and you looked up and you saw the Spanish Armada off your coast, you started quaking. Yep. Mm-hmm. In your boots, right? And so, uh, so over, and so it was a monarch, right? And I know the so America is a colony, and you know we we, we broke away, not consistent with the mythology that we were taught as kids, right? But overall, this idea of of, of a voting right, of a written constitution, even though we're three fourths uh, human, according to the Constitution, right? But we were moving in the direction is because those values were placed there that people were able to say, hey, we have in our document that all men are created equal. And they begin to challenge the idea of white supremacy, which was a re- which is a real thing. Right. Uh, we can debate about how it's defined, how it manifests. Right. But mm-hmm. that prior to uh, prior to like, I'll say 65. Right. Uh, it was in everything. It was uh, a pernicious and the majority of Americans, black, white, whatever you want to say, were, were racist, held some type of racist view. And yes, black people can be racist because if you didn't yes. pass the
3: paper bag test, yeah, we were,
2: you were in trouble. Yeah, you can, you can look at all we, these old black and white TV this. shows,
3: too. Yeah. We, we, I grew up with apartheid television. Yeah, Not a single black person on and if there was one on, it was a special event.
2: Oh yeah, you got the whole even if, into the night. You
3: can event, yeah. look at Bonanza. You can look at Johnny Yuma. You can look at all these shows. All white shows. There's no, there's no blacks on the show. And mm-hmm. when one did appear, you know all the black people. would be All the black the people would time. tune in mm-hmm. because it was a rare event. Mm-hmm. It, it, and the only person you could go to would be Yafet Koto. Or, or Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. You, you could count on one hand the number of uh, Paul Robeson, the number of black people that could appear in film or on TV. Mm-hmm. So now, black people everywhere. Every commercial on TV has got a black person okay. in, almost. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and sometimes more than one. But mm-hmm. we grew up, I grew up at a time when it was apartheid television. So white supremacy... Was the rule, and I think the exceptionalism was the people that fought against that. I think so too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And, and 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 that's where that that lies. Now it, the
1: for me, the the beautiful part about the the part about our country that I think is the most wonderful thing is that we can descend mm-hmm. because in other a lot of other places you can't. You know, and mm-hmm. I I certainly have lived in a very a variety of different places, mm-hmm. and I know like you don't descend in Saudi Arabia. Well, yeah, you don't, you don't, descend, you don't pop up it, Calling yourself. Going against something that's going on there, but to dissent in America <laughs> at that time,
2: right? So always, you know, always uh, uh, have this, this 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 fondness for uh, for for quote unquote white Americans who dissented uh, during the time frames that they did, right? Yeah, Think about because the that was that was a big the majority of those people were white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These were white teeth, and they're all like in their seventies now, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so to me, and that, that goes shows... back to the
1: argument that that that. Uh... That you made about your friend, mm-hmm. there's plenty to be proud of. Pull that out, and yeah. look at it, and say that, that you're you're proud of joining together to free a people from an oppressive
3: environment. Mm-hmm. That the,
1: that should be how history yeah. is being framed, well, not and 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 framed and, in such a and people who, a divisive way.
3: And people who mislabel themselves as white, <laughs> in my opi- in my opinion. <laughs> are at a double loss in the sense that they've lost their own ethnicity. Mm-hmm. They were collapsed into a box called whiteness. Mm-hmm. And I often ask people, what were you before you were white? And they generally look at me and...
1: Like, don't know strange. What about.
3: Well, they were Irish mm-hmm. and German. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the box of whiteness, you can actually trace it to Enlightenment mm-hmm. thinkers. You can trace it to a guy named Blumenbach who created the term Caucasian. Didn't exist before that. Uh, Linnaeus, who talked about what white...
1: Was it? Like when- what was the the uh, date range on the
3: 1700s. So. These were Enlightenment thinkers who polluted. And see, that's the problem with, that was the beginning of the problem with democracy. It, it It's better than a monarchy, but it was tainted with white supremacy from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And so it was going to have that problem all along from back then to now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he, Blumenbach, Johann Blumenbach, 1700s, you can look him up if you like, He invented the term Caucasian. So Mm -hmm. what were people from Western Europe before they were white? They were German and French Mm -hmm. and Irish, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, and they were collapsed into a box called whiteness. I make the argument that the reason we have freedom of religion is because they had to collapse that box. Because when the 13 colonies were originally existent, they they teach this sugar-coated version of the 13 colonies. 13 colonies, there was a lot of religious hatred in every Mm -hmm. one of them. If you, were, if you were a Catholic and you wound up in a Puritan colony, you would probably be burned at a stake or ran out of town. So how do you collapse religious hatred? You write a constitution that says you have freedom of religion. Mm-hmm. And so what happens, though? you got to learn to hate someone else. So there's no other law that says you shouldn't hate people because of their skin color. But we can all agree that we're not going to hate each other because of religion, and that's where we get that First Amendment. Interesting theory.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: that's where we get that first right. from. so
3: all right so let's go back to
2: this is the question because we have what 16 minutes is mm-hmm. like what now right so we know history right I, you know you're a history buff i'm a history buff uh right and so for me the importance of history is to realize how we got where we're at and then to also look and see some of the uh the things that are still kind of going on it's like tiff and i we, we we're big we cook a lot for thanksgiving and so we always talk we about cook ham. a lot
1: for all, all the time. Yeah, That's it, and it shows, right?
2: <laughs> but one of the things <laughs> I tell the story. Of, I tell the story of a ham, right? There's a there's this story out there where a, where a long version of the short version of the story is that four generations people pass down. They cut off the end of a ham, mm. right? They always cut it off and they throw it away. And like the, by the time it gets to the fifth generation, they're like, "Why the hell do we cut off this end of the ham? This is a good piece of the ham." And they go back to to the to like the, the grandmother, the, or the, the second great grandmother, she says, because when I, I cut it off because we had a small pot, mm-hmm. we couldn't put it all in there. Mm-hmm. But it goes forward four generations, right? And yeah. I feel like that sometimes when, we, when we're doing
3: Well, that. you go backwards, too, when you talk about slave owners that ate high on the hog mm-hmm. and the slaves were given the leftovers. So when you cut the feed off of the hog. That's so that's where we get hog feed from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get chitlins from. Mm-hmm. They threw away what they considered to be the bad parts, and of course the Africans were very astute of how to turn mm-hmm. something that was mm-hmm. made negative into a delicious mm-hmm. plate. Now not everybody don't like chitlins, so don't mm-hmm. get me like mm-hmm. chitlins, So don't get me wrong. <laughs> but 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 they were able to turn in food that was cast away by the slave owners into a delicious plates yeah. in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And and that makes me remember another thing. We we think Black Eyed please will give you good luck on New Year's Day. Well, how did that happen? Well, General Sherman, who cut the Confederacy in half in his march across Georgia, he cut the Confederate Army in half, which, which was going to ensure their defeat eventually. Um, and when he did, he told all of his soldiers to burn everything. He, he believed in total war. Yeah, he'd burn yeah, everything. Give me a war criminal today. Yeah, he'd be a war criminal. Yeah, yeah, criminal. they go up to the slave owner's house. The master's probably not there because he's got drafted and he's all fighting unless he owned 20 or more slaves because they had a thing called a 20 Negro Law. But the owner of the house may not own it, may, may be gone, join the, the Confederacy. Burn that house down or tell them they got a certain amount of time to free whatever slaves they have. If they give you any lip, fire any shot, drag a cannon up there and blow them out. Burn everything. Burn the the corn, burn the wheat. But don't burn the black-eyed peas because we need that for our, for our horses. Horses eat black-eyed peas. By the way, black-eyed peas are an African food, but um, like watermelon. So um, so they don't burn the black-eyed peas. So now the the, 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 the former slave owners are pro-slavery whites. Uh, and not all whites owned slaves, but they were pro-slavery because that was the American dream at the right. time. So, so now, to, to the laughter of slaves who were now free, they, they got to watch these pro-slavery men having to eat the very food that they were forced to eat because there was nothing left to eat. So, <laughs> so, so black-eyed peas becomes good luck on New Year's days. Days not only just for the pro-slavery Confederates, but also for the black people. Oh, we've been sure. eating black-eyed peas forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm
2: not a big black-eyed pea fan, and it's it's because one time my dad planted planted a whole acre of black-eyed peas. We had black-eyed peas forever today, and I'm not a big, that just.
1: I love black-eyed peas.
2: <laughs> but. Welcome. But answer the question. Depending now that we know how you cook them. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, what now, you have to right? pull all that black water off. So black what guy
2: pieces, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Okay, go ahead. So the question, <laughs> you know, the question
2: that I that I ask myself, uh, and that that friends ask me, what now, Kevin? All right. So we 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 we, we say yes, we agree with you on this. I so have a question. on now? this?
1: In this time, like you see everything that's happening right now. Mm. Is what prompted you to say? I need
3: to put this out and get people. That's a good well, question. Well, I, 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 I grew up in San Antonio. Born and raised, and I heard all this stuff about the Alamo. One thing that bothered me, and I'll never forget this, they equated the Battle of the Alamo with the Battle of Thermopylae, which was the battle that the uh, Greeks fought against the Persians. Supposedly, mm-hmm. the story goes, 300 Spartans, and they made a movie about that, and many of mm-hmm. y'all, mm-hmm. y'all listening to the sound of my voice saw the movie, which mm-hmm. is a total myth. But they, they, they had a three hundred Spartans. That's not a myth. There were three hundred Spartans. Mm-hmm. But what they don't tell you is there was about 6,000 6, barbarians fighting with them on the last day of the battle. So this three hundred oh. Spartan idea is a total myth. They they didn't fight that battle all by themselves. And
1: there were six thousand. Yeah, six
3: thousand three hundred <laughs> we'll say. So, so and so to equate the Battle of the Alamo with the Battle of Thermopylae is totally ludicrous. It's totally ludicrous. I never believed it for a second, even in elementary school, when one of the teachers was talking about the Battle of Alamo, was like the Battle of Thermopylae. Well, how many soldiers were at the Battle of Thermopylae? Well, it was a million, and different historians use different numbers, but it was well over 100,000 Persian troops. Uh, and a narrow gorge, 300 Spartans supposedly holding the gorge, and well, the first thing I thought of is there's a door. Let me see. I get maybe 20 people in front of that door. And we're going to hold back, I don't know, 3,000 people bum-rushing that door. Now, you probably last about 15 minutes, if that. Mm-hmm. I don't care what kind of swords you got. I don't care what kind of shields you got. You're not going to last very long. So that whole argument about narrow gorge and only 300, it made no sense to me at all. So something was fishy. Or something, <laughs> something was rotten in Denmark, with that, with that storm, yeah. as Shakespeare might say. But um, so God bothered me, and then as a kid, I never forget this. I, I had a friend of mine who said he he bought a coonskin hat, and he's just embarrassed about it all his life. I said, yeah, I know what you mean. I said because Crockett was a slave owner, Travis was a slave owner, Bowie was a slave owner, mm-hmm. even the lowest private in the Texas Army was either pro-slavery or a slave owner, Mm -hmm. even if he only owned one slave. They were all slave owners. Mm -hmm. So I'm coming out of the Alamo with my father, probably 10 years old, I don't know, nine, I'm just guessing roughly. And this old man sees us coming out, walking across Alamo Street there. He said, did y'all just come out of there? And and my father said, yeah. Well, everything in there is a lie. And he just walked off. And my father said nothing. We just kept on going. And that, that stuck in my mind all of my life stuck in my mind. And over the course of time, in talking to people who've been here all their life, and I would talk to people because I was in the civil rights movement for a long time. I would talk to Mexican-Americans who would tell me the same thing. Don't believe any of that Alamo stuff. It's all a bunch of baloney. And then I actually found out from another professor, do you know there were black soldiers that fought the Battle of the Alamo? And I said, yeah, but on whose side? And he said, well, that's my point there were thousands of black soldiers who fought on Santa Ana's side. But mm-hmm. so they were freeing slaves. Not on the, the Alamo mm-hmm. defender side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they were not only freed slaves, freed by a colonel named Bradburn. By the way, Bradburn was a white guy from Kentucky who fought with the Mexican army, as did most, or many, I'll say many, Irish did. Because the Irish were Catholics, Mexico is a Catholic country, they were not about to fight with the proudest Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, the complexity of that, right, is yeah. not as,
2: yeah. as, the history is, is not black and white. There's a lot of complexity to it. Yeah. And I think uh, going through your book, that's what, uh, you know, that's what I saw. That's what I read. You know, the, I think the title is very provocative. And I think if you the feel the title
1: is very apropos. There we go. <laughs> apropos.
2: It's provocative for me, and so anything that well, it's uh, provocatively
1: apropos.
3: Yeah,
2: pr- <laughs> so, that's right. You know, there so, you go. So, <laughs> so <laughs> Tiffany gets mad at me, right? So I have a couple books like there. Uh, anything that makes me repulse, I like. I want to read it. Yeah. Let me go. Let me go it's read well, good it. For you and I have I some. Think. I have a couple titles like that at several titles. I don't now.
1: think it's not. It's, that it makes you repose. It makes sense. That,
2: that startles me. That makes that's yeah. a better word. That's a better startles. word. Startle. That startles me. And, and your that, title startles. For me, me. that's and I don't find it the, startling at all. And then as I was reading through as we were looking through the news, I think it was a big, big hoobla about it on the news. I was just like, let me get that book. Right? Yeah. You know, there's a lot You
1: know what me, I find <laughs> funny is that uh well, you don't want to be uh using me as a litmus test because <laughs> I <okay>? <laughs> <Who> <laughs> apparently I am startling and in your face too. I didn't know this. I don't think of myself that way, <laughs> my, my producer is laughing all the back Well, and, and
3: laugh. some of this is not, <laughs> some of this is some of this is not even new. Yeah. It's just that it's not well publicized. Yeah. Um. And I mentioned, but it's what, the it,
1: truth. It, it, you know, the thing about the truth is, the truth is always going to come to light. Mm-hmm. Somebody is going to look at it and, and have the the fortitude and personal character. We're always talking about things like what. Like character, integrity, these these important values yeah. that we assign to to being an American. Well, that's exactly what uh, Professor Solace is. And that's what it takes <laughs> to bring something like this it does and I think to the forefront good. and to do the proper research on it so that he can say, "Hey, if it, a there's
3: business. a couple of books that are really, I think, are a goldmine about understanding the Alamo. One is by Dr. Philip Tucker." And this is a provocative title as well, called The Alamo, um, Exodus from the Alamo, The Anatomy of the Last Stand Myth. That, that's the title of Dr. Philip Tucker's book. Uh, PhD, he's a, military, he he's, a mili- military, he's a military historian, by the way. All right. Ooh, I love it. So uh, oh, We need
1: to call him. And over. then
3: the other, mine, <laughs> the other gold mine book, and we can talk about that later, but the other gold mine book is uh, Todd Nielsen. It's probably 900 pages long. And what he does, and he's not even a historian.
2: And yeah, he's just like, in uh, that guy Nelson, and he's just like a, a very avid historian. Uh, yeah, yeah. Historian, history buff. He, history buff, but he goes through, he, he, he goes to the original material. Oh, yeah, the, but
3: uh, he goes to newspaper clippings, report after report after report, and then gives, in his opinion, what sounds to be accurate and what sounds to be totally false. Um, one of, And one of the things he does talk about um, is the number of Alamo defenders that ran. They didn't stay there to fight. They ran.
2: The, the, uh, Santa Ana's army was huge.
3: Yeah. Well, but it wasn't the 7,000 in the John Wayne movie. It was only about, it was, because that's a myth too. There was only about 3,000 fighters that Santa Ana brought with him, and only 1,500 of them probably saw action. And they came over the northern wall and the Alamo was much bigger than it is now. It was encompassed all of that Woolworth building mm-hmm. all the way across the street. Went further north. But according to Joe, the slave, and I don't like to call him that, he should have a last name. I call him Joe Boone because his mother was probably the victim of a rape by, Je- by Daniel Boone. Um, so I call him Joe Boone. I call him Joe Travis. He was a slave of William Travis. He said that over 500 Mexican troops were over the wall before a single shot was ever fired. It was 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, not in the middle of the day like the movie. Uh, It was pitch black. And Crockett was quoted in Nelson's book and other people's book, too, as saying on several occasions that I had rather die out in the open than be hemmed up in these four walls. So there is... I think, educated speculation that he led about 100, 120 men out of the west, out of the southern and eastern walls because, you know, in any war, there's always going to be cowardice. There's always going to be, I want to live to fight another day. I'm not a coward. Maybe we can make it to Gonzales because there was extra troops there. Mm -hmm. So some of them ran, they can make it to Gonzales. Some ran because they were cowards. Mm -hmm. Who who knows Mm -hmm. detail, you know, from one person to the next. But the documentation shows majority of them ran about sixty. and numbers vary, sixty to seventy-five died. They they were asleep on. It was cold. As I don't know what it was. A blue Northerner blew through San Antonio. It was below freezing. They were caught off guard. They couldn't get to their guns in time. So the majority of them were killed in the long cabin or the long barracks they call it before anything could ever be happened. Bruce Winders in his book, he writes another good historian. He, he used the term, most of the defenders were pushed out of the Alamo, which means they ran. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so this is all kinds of stuff that I come to find out growing up in a town, living in the shadow of the Alamo, living in the shadow of something that's just simply not true, when, when we ought to be told the truth. And the truth, the truth of any pudding is in the taste. Mm-hmm. The truth of your wife's best cake is in the taste. <laughs> so, so you can talk about how good that cake is, but until you taste it, that's going to tell you the story. When the Texas Constitution was written after the Battle of the Alamo and after the Battle of San Jacinto, they enshrined, made slavery legal in yep. the Texas Constitution. That's true. That's
2: the, yeah. that's
3: the proof of the pudding mm. of what this battle was all about to begin with. So the Battle of San Jacinto, in my opinion, had to be the worst day in the life of any African-American living in Texas at that time. And it was because they
2: represented, as we talked about with, uh, with Professor Berry from UT, is that there was a dollar amount assigned to slaves. And, af- and actually, when you look at, at the end of the Civil War, when slaves were emancipated, right, you lost $3 billion, uh, uh, a little bit over $3 billion in, in, in financial worth uh, that was just that was free, right? And uh, so that's there. We're almost running out of time. Uh, so the question that I ask is for me, right? My my answer to this is what now, right? So from what who, would you like to see? Yeah, what would you like now? to see? What now? You
3: no, know, we still got a big problem with racism in this country. Mm-hmm. We still got a big problem with racial killings. You saw what happened in Buffalo the other day, a yes. mass shooting of African Americans targeted. Mm-hmm. We just he saw drove two hundred miles. Yeah, we just saw the killing of. Um, we just saw the city settle a huge complaint against police for the killing of Jesse Gary, Anton Scott, huge mm-hmm. amounts of money because these were policemen that should have never been policemen to begin with. Mm-hmm. There are an awful lot of good policemen, but unfortunately there's enough bad ones to make the whole system in bad mm-hmm. shape. So we still have this problem of white supremacy. We have a governor that's trying to tell people what they can teach in school. You, you can't teach African-American studies or you can't say anything about Nat Turner's rebellion or you can't say anything that contradicts the mythology of American history. We are facing some serious problems that are racially motivated, in my opinion. Okay.
2: So I would say so we'd say policing and policy is one of the things there, which uh, which, you know, I, I think we could do more there. And then also uh, education, education and bringing in uh, which Cause,
1: cause history should be taught. That's, you know, that's the good, mm-hmm. the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. The, you just say it all. It yeah. doesn't it, it's not uh, it, it shouldn't be sugar, whitewashed sugar or coded, sugar coated or however you want to whatever phrase you want to use. History is history. Yeah,
2: and and the scholar in me wants to go into more detail to unpack
1: a lot of things. We got to bring Professor Solis. We can stay here all day. (laughs) Yeah, because
2: there's more to this, right? It's not as black and white or as simple as the idiots on TV would have you believe. You could just, Mm -hmm. oh, we're just going to say this here, but there is nuance. There is depth to to everything that he just said, right? That we could go into, and Uh, it's
1: and it is worth your time and your dollars to go and pick up. A copy of the Alamo, A Cradle of Lies, Slavery and White Supremacy. Starting the bibliography. <laughs> <laughs> Read the book because you it's enlightening. Yeah. And you you're and it's historical fact. The yeah. the very subject that we discuss over and over again, history being taught in schools, this is this is this is American history. You know? Mm. Black history is American history. And this really isn't
2: We'll just move on. <laughs> now, I know I know, this isn't
1: black oh, yeah. history. This is a great book. But this is American history. The Alamo very, and what happened there is oh, American history. It's got some black history, history in it. It does have some
2: black mm-hmm. history. Yeah. I like it. It's a good book. I would, uh, I, I would, you know, we, Tiff and I argue about our methodologies. I would start in the uh, appendix, the, in, the bio, in the bibliography, in the notes. And uh, you can just trace, and you can see where he's getting his data from, and the information that he's bringing into it. For me, that's always that that determines if it's worth my read, right? And it was worth my read. Right. Professor
3: Solis is you're having a book signing Diff- Diff- Ford, Tiffany right? you're unfortunately or fortunately you're stuck with an intellectual <laughs> Sim- <laughs> Lord and that's why I
1: married him <laughs> he sucked me in with that before I found out about his divergent views. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, <I'm> <laughs> and, and you know the, the great thing since we, we're running out of time here but the, the great thing right that I really appreciate uh, about is that we can't Tiff and I are proof we can have difference of opinions right mm-hmm. and so I'm just like I don't know if I believe that or and, and she's like, we're like, I, to we have to give me more, Kevin. And but so, the
1: deal is, is that, you know, the premise of our show is that we're more alike than then, we are different. We are different. Yeah, and sure. you have to hear what all of the thinking is and what all of you have to hear truth. Truth is important.
2: And life is more than just a sound soundbite.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you've been listening to On the Record with Tiffany. And Kevin. And thank you so much, Professor Salas.
0: You've been enjoying On the Record with Tiffany. We encourage you to share these stories with friends and family. You can listen to other shows by going to 930amtheanswer.com. And join us next week for On the Record with Tiffany on 930am The Answer.